Hello again, I'm Delaney Rustin, MD, with another episode of Finding Mental Health. My guest today is Katherine Swites, who is a successful consultant, having started her career with McKinsey Consulting Firm. Catherine's intense personal experience with mental illness propelled her to start the Stability Network, an organization that finds professionals willing to speak openly about their mental health conditions. It's the only organization I have found focused on professionals, a group that tends to be quite silent on these personal matters. Hello, Catherine. Thanks for being on the show today. Hi, Delaney. It's great to be here. Well, first, I just want to start with, can you tell us a little bit about what is the Stability Network? Sure. The Stability Network is a not-for-profit project, which is basically a coalition of professionals, as you mentioned, who themselves have mental health conditions and have committed to speaking out and sharing their story and experiences to help others. And what is unique about this? I think for the first time, people can come to a resource, in this case our website, and see a number of examples of people who live with specific mental health conditions, and not just that they have them and that they're willing to speak out about them, but very importantly, how they live effectively with them. That's really what's different. And also, have you found anything else like it, other groups that are really focused on professionals coming forward? I have not yet. We're increasingly collaborating with organizations all over the country who do aspects of this, but we believe we're the first clearinghouse of professionals who are willing to serve as role models for others in balancing their mental health and their professional success. And, well, how did you get started, I mean, in terms of this? Tell me a little bit about, first, your experience with mental illness. Sure. When I was in grad school, I had my first psychotic break and was hospitalized. And in the hospital, I really struggled to begin to chart a path to recovery and to seek role models who could help me understand, one, how to get healthy, but also how to get back to my professional career. And then I really relied on a book called The Unquiet Mind by Kay Redfield Jameson, And I held this book out as an example of somebody who had been able to get back on their feet and be successful. And once I had progressed back in my career, uh, I realized that if people like myself didn't speak out and become role models, then we couldn't expect others to and we couldn't expect people to get healthy. We really needed to provide examples of how people live effectively with mental illness um, so that everybody could get the care they need and see the path to recovery and to professional success. Mm-hmm. And Catherine, just stepping back a little bit, what what started to happen? What what were you studying in grad school? I was in business school at Harvard, and I was studying a classic business curriculum. Um, and just somewhat out of the blue, this psychotic break happened following an acute manic episode. And. So in college, no, no depression or kind of mania or anything then? When I look back, I can see periods of hypomania and maybe uh, slight depression. But at the time, I, I didn't have a label for it. I didn't know what it was. It wasn't until I landed in the hospital um, with this very acute situation that I began to understand what I had. Well, it's obviously, you know, striking to have been in a mania situation to go to psychosis. Can you tell us a little bit about both of those, what happened? 
Sure. So typically in the hypomanic phase, one is incredibly productive, has decreased need for sleep, and is just generally, again, I would just say hyperproductive. And at some point that can, in my case, I can't speak for others, but in my case, uh, I had another what I call triggering event, um, difficult situation that caused me to go from hypomania to mania and then ultimately to psychosis. But I have uh, bipolar 1 disorder with psychosis. So um, I do have psychotic periods, uh, not, you know, a couple times a year. Mm-hmm. And what did that first one um, look like? What were you experiencing as part of the psychosis? Um, well, just complete confusion, uh, delusions. Uh, I thought I was Jesus. Um, I was speaking in Dr. Seuss rhymes. Um, I mean, I had all of the classic signs of acute psychosis. I mean, I was in the ambulance. They were strapping me down. Somebody told me the ambulance was going to take me home, and then when the ambulance started not driving me home, I was confused, and I was asking the ambulance driver where we were going, and then I blacked out again. Um, I mean, they were trying to strap me down in the ambulance, and I wouldn't let them. Um, Then when we got to the hospital, they asked for my insurance card, and I went through the roof because I was like, I, you know, the only reason you're going to admit me is because I go to Harvard, and I was really pissed off. I mean, here I am totally out of my mind, and they're asking for my insurance. It was just such a defining moment of... Healthcare in America. Yeah. Looking back, are you glad that you were able to get hospital care at the time? I mean, some people would say, oh, that sounds kind of deceptive. They had to lie to you and things like that. No, it was the only way to keep me healthy. I mean, I was a danger to myself. I was not able to, I mean, I was walking in traffic. I was trying to swim in the Charles River, jumping off bridges. I mean, I was a danger to myself. I had to be hospitalized. What what does it look like now if you if your thought patterns start to go awry? Now I just start to get confused and I and paranoid and I think everybody's talking about me and that the that when I go to Starbucks the whole store is uh saying things that have to do with me. Um I don't know how to describe it. It's called ideas of reference, but it's basically when you get very confused about what's going on around you and you think you're at the center of all of it. Um and then I also get very paranoid, and um, so it's when I start to have that confusion that I know I'm spiraling, and so basically I take more medication to combat that. Mm-hmm. And do you um, have insight then? You can you kind of know that's happening at the time? Now I do. I've learned, because I had uh, another psychotic break and hospitalization and about a two-year depression. Much of it was suicidal, and I so badly don't want to go back to that anymore that now I no longer think being Jesus is fun or funny. I realize it's sick and I need to take medication to stop it immediately. Mm -hmm. When you started to get better, what was it that this book helped you to think about? I think it was really just the notion that one could recover and that one could move back into a professional career. I mean, sitting in the hospital where everything had all the assumptions of my life and expectations had been pulled away and I was basically helpless on medication trying to figure out how to piece back a normal life and a successful career, 
I think the book just gave me an example of somebody who had also had very acute moments of mental illness, but who had gone on to professional success. And I looked, and throughout my illness and my work, uh, my career, I have looked for examples of people who are balancing mental illness and career, and they're just very hard to find. Um, and that's why I formed the Stability Network to hopefully provide those examples to other people. Mm-hmm. Can you, um, for our listeners who don't know about Jamison, can you just say a little bit about her and the book? Sure. She's a doctor and a professor um, and works at Johns Hopkins, has been very influential in mental health, both providing medical services, but also as a thought leader. And she wrote a memoir about her own experience with bipolar that provides very stark examples of how the illness manifested itself for her, um, but then how she was able to recover and go on to a very prominent career. Um, And that's particularly notable that she's been able to do it in the medical profession just because there's even more stigma in the medical profession than in others. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, when you started to do better from that first um, situation, do you remember what helped at the time? Basically, there are a couple things that I think have always helped me, and I have had two acute psychotic breaks and then a number of smaller ones, and it's always the same three things. And The first thing is what I call the basics. It's medication, which I'm very um, lucky has worked for me, as well as sleep and exercise and therapy. I mean, a very uh, sort of delicate combination of all of those three together, I think, are the underpinning of any recovery. And then in addition, for me, work has been very important. So the ability to get back to work and feel productive in the community, uh, whether that's paid work or unpaid work, just feeling like you have a role, I think, is very important. And then supportive community, and in my case, that meant family and friends. Um, And although I only told a small group of people originally, those people were very important as a touchstone in helping with my path back to health. Hmm. And what about the role of therapy? The role of therapy has been extremely important to me, and I personally have benefited from a form of cognitive behavioral therapy called dialectical behavioral therapy, which basically just brings in uh, approach to mindfulness and meditation, and I myself use yoga, which has been very helpful for me. But the key aspect of therapy for me has been understanding my triggers, my emotional triggers, and then managing the emotions around them in a way that is productive, such that I do not get triggered by anxious situations um, with people, with coworkers, with family. Um, but that I'm able to process the emotion in a way that it doesn't trigger me into a depression or a mania. Well, what's it, let's take an example. Like you're, you're. I mean, I imagine you still are at work, and something might, you know, make you feel angry or just insecure or those basic human emotions. Was there one that you found that you were particularly prone to before starting this type of therapy? I think there are a couple. To provide one example, I think. Often um, we feel uncomfortable asking for what we need, and that's particularly important when you have a mental illness to really create the conditions around you to be healthy and to ask for what you need. And I think that often is hard for all of us to, to come forward and say, I need this. And what dialectical behavioral therapy has really taught me is 
how do you how do you first of all identify your needs and then seek to have them met in a productive way asking others around you for what you want such that the situation doesn't become so extreme because you haven't asked for what you want and therefore you get overtired or overstretched. Um, but with dialectical behavioral therapy, I've really learned to communicate up front um, what is needed and therefore not to get into those stress situations. Hmm. And is there um, an example, though, of emotion regulation that would be, you know, able to, you'd be able to communicate that with us? Well, that is, so basically emotion regulation is what happens around any time you need to express yourself or, I mean, I guess the other aspect of sort of asking for what you need and getting your needs met is the other aspect of emotion regulation is really feeling your emotions. So, the key tenet of dialectical behavioral therapy is, okay, you have a stressful situation with a coworker. Maybe you disagree about something that's important to the client. Um, and it's really a matter of, you know, going and having a cup of coffee, sitting for half an hour with your emotion, as uncomfortable as that may be, and not engaging in some of the destructive behaviors that we all resort to when we're not able to process our emotion. Oh, that's a great, great point. And if somebody isn't able to find a therapist who does this, are there workbooks or things people could turn to? Yes, absolutely. There are a number of good workbooks. And if you go on Amazon and just Google dialectical behavioral therapy, um, you can find those workbooks. And I, in fact, recommend that people buy them online and take them to your therapist, even if your therapist isn't trained in it. Uh, that person can help you work through a workbook. You know, basically just buy them two copies, buy them a copy, buy yourself a copy, and work through it with anybody, whatever they're training. Ah, I would never have thought of that. And it's interesting about this type of DBT is that we often associate it with borderline personality disorder, which is interesting first in that most people, if you're outside of the medical condition, unless you have it in your family, people don't really know what that is. And um, and yet, f- finally, people are understanding that this type of therapy can reach out to um, people dealing with all sorts of uh, mental health problems. Absolutely. I think it should be taught in school. I think it's just a very effective way to both feel and process and uh, respond in a mindful way to all of the daily stresses and emotions that we all face. Mm-hmm. And when we use, I know, you know, it's funny, it's it's very much the inward right now is mindful. They ha- there's a new magazine, and we're all talking about it. My understanding is it used to be meditation and whatnot was to try to aim your thoughts at a certain, an idea of a tree or just something that relaxes you. And I my understanding is mindful is more is just like you're saying, sitting with whatever your thought process is, but not letting it overcome you, having a kind of a separation. Is, is that a way to think about it? Absolutely. I mean, mindful is just breathe. It's what you can do every day in the car, in a meeting, anytime you're overtaking with emotion. And it's easy things like just paying attention to your breathing or my favorite exercise is to name five objects in your line of sight to just bring you into the present and stop that mental loop that so many of us do when we're worried or anxious. 
really just bringing yourself into the moment and looking at the tree outside your car window and realizing that it's beautiful, that in itself will bring you into the moment quickly and can often interrupt emotions that can quickly become triggers and cause larger problems. Mm, that's a great point. Uh, well, tell me, getting back to this, to, to, you know, thinking about coming open in a professional setting, so you work as a consultant for many years at different places and uh, very professional environments. And what has it been like to be open at work or have you been? Yes, I have been at the last three jobs. So over the last 10 years, I've always been open. Um, And, you know, I say that everybody needs to pick the, the time and place where they feel comfortable being open and sharing. There's no magic formula. Everybody has to chart their own course. Um, but I often myself have done it when I'm healthy, um, when it's sort of an upfront discussion about my goals for the year and so forth. And I can say, I want, I just want you to be aware that there's this other aspect of my life that I have to manage. I've usually had to bring it up in the context of work-life balance um, and limitations on travel and things like that to say, I can do these five things, but I have trouble doing these other things given my medical condition. And I found people to be quite open. I haven't known, you know, I haven't perceived any overt stigma or um, judgment of that. Um, I can say, though, that when I'm unhealthy, I, I, I really just want to underscore that I think it's, it helps to bring it up when you're in a position of strength and when you're in a position of health. Um, and then that paves the way for it to be realized when things aren't going as well. Oh, that's a great point. And so with the idea of the Stability Network, was there a moment that you said, gosh, I want to start something like this, or how did that happen? We started with a small discussion group in Seattle. There were about three of us who spearheaded the idea, um, and then about a year later we got an endorsement from a big national organization called the National Council for Behavioral Health, and they uh, they provide, they supported us intellectually. They, they provided, um, they basically helped us see that there was something valuable in the idea. And after that, we recruited about 30 people, initial leaders. Um, and since then, we've launched a website. But I should say we're very much in our infancy. Um, we have our initial leaders and our website, but we're really looking to grow now through increased media and outreach in a much more significant way. And when you first started to go around to businesses talking about this, what was the reactions you got from the business community? I think it's too early to tell on that. We're still beginning our outreach to business. So far, we've focused on recruiting these leaders who are themselves working in their companies but we haven't yet done a full-scale outreach to companies that we expect to do that in 2015. Wonderful. And, and now tell me a little bit about getting people to join. Has that? Can you give an example of somebody who was maybe reluctant to join and then decided to come forward? Sure. I mean, first I can say it's very challenging to, one, find these individuals who have mental health issues because they are basically in the closet, and then to convince them to come out is very difficult. So I expected it to be much easier, and it's been much harder. Um, But just through grassroots networking, I'm able to identify people who maybe have mentioned to a friend that they have an interest in mental health issues. I follow up with that person and slowly cultivate them 
understanding, in fact, whether they have a mental health condition, and if they do, convincing them to come out. And I can give you a couple of examples of people who have had mental health issues in their family or are willing to talk about it at a broad level, maybe even very involved in mental health issues. But I really had to encourage them to speak about their own experiences um, and work with them over time to get to a place where they were then being very open about the medications they take and the regimes they follow to stay healthy. So, for example, we have an academic leader who I first spoke with, and he talked to me about his uh, sister's suicide and how important that was and how involved he was in that. Um, and he mentioned just uh, offhand that he had his own experience with anxiety and depression, and I followed up with him for coffee and really asked whether he would be willing to speak directly about his own experience. And we talked a lot about what would feel comfortable and what do we call it mental illness, do we call it a mental health condition, how do we create language that's more inclusive of those who have less severe illnesses. And he came back and said, yes, I'll join. Um, and then we, it was a matter of putting a bio together for the web and it was a question of how he would describe his own condition. And at first he described it in the context of this relative. Uh, and over time we got him to change his write-up to really focus on himself. And ultimately he was one of the most open people on our website about the drugs and the medications that he takes for his anxiety, depression, and how he stays healthy. That's a great example. Thank you so much. Well, in... As we get to the end here, I'm just curious, what are the types of things that you'd like to see the Stability Network individuals be um, advocating for? Is it just coming forward or to see changes in the workplace or getting business community to donate more? I mean, what are the kind of things you'd like to see? Yes. I mean, I think there are two key areas that the Stability Network can be helpful for in addition to our role as storytellers and um, role models and stigma reducers, I think one is, as you say, absolutely working with the business community to change the perception in the business community, but also, importantly, the policies and practices so more people with mental health conditions can get work. And what you'll find is a much lower percent of people with mental health conditions are able to work than many other disabilities. And what we're trying to do is really get people with mental health conditions back to work in companies that have policies that support that. And the other big area is helping to increase funding for the mental health system more broadly. The mental health system has historically been publicly funded, but there are a lot of gaps that individuals can play in improving services for those with mental health conditions uh, living on the margins. And so one of the advocacy areas of the Stability Network is really to talk about what some of those improvements could be and rally private individuals to fund them. Oh, well, that's great, Catherine. And it's wonderful. What could listeners, if they want to get involved with the Stability Network, what kind of people are you looking for and what can they do? Great. Well, first, we're looking for people to join as leaders. And on our website are clear criteria, but it's leaders in the business sector, the nonprofit sector, in academia, in the media, in the arts. And it's really people who are willing to say, I have a mental health condition, and to talk about how they live effectively with it. And on the website, there's the ability to send us an email expressing your interest, and we'll 
schedule a call and follow up with you and make sure we can get you among our ranks. So that's the most important thing. Also on our website is the ability to engage a stability leader. So if you in your local area would like a stability leader to come speak to an audience or lend their name to an advocacy campaign, send us an email and we'll try to make that happen. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, for being on the show and with a wealth of information. It's been wonderful. Thank you. It's, I so appreciate the opportunity, and I look forward to being in touch with your listeners. And I encourage all of our listeners to go to www.thestabilitynetwork.org to learn more about this wonderful new organization and consider getting involved. Well, that's it for our show today. We hope you'll help us spread the word about Finding Mental Health. Please share us on your Facebook page and tell your friends about it. Podcasts are a great way to learn about things while you're on the go. To get future podcasts, please subscribe on iTunes. Thanks to our team, production consultant Joshua McNichols, production assistant Selena Cariva, technical engineer C.J. Lazenby, and music by Grand Hallway through Jack Straw's Artist Program.